Welcome to the DTP podcast for February 2022, volume 60, number two. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTP's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we are going to talk about some of the content in February's issue of DTP. Uh, we're recording this on the 11th of January and so happy new year to everyone and welcome to uh, 2022. Uh, one thing to just point out that this is DTB's 60th year. It's our anniversary, our Diamond Jubilee year. And later on, we are going to be marking it with uh, various publications and, and other events. Um, do listen out for more details in, in future podcasts. James, anything you want to say? Well, I, I suppose just to reduce expectations, there will not be bunting or uh, tea parties in the streets for this but um i think we're, we're looking forward to looking back over because it is i mean it's been a long time 60 years you know 60 years ago there was no regulation of drugs um it, it was a very different world there was no nice there were no guidelines and um we hope to really remind people of just how far regulation has come and the safety of drugs have come but also how there's still lots to do to ensure that um drugs and therapeutics remain safe and appropriate for people. I mean, the need has changed I and mean, the need is still there for what we would regard as independent evidence informed reviews. Uh, as you say, it's, it's changed from one of where there was an, a, a vacuum almost that DTB was, was providing information into to one where there's almost too much noise. Yes. I mean, I think we, we forget that, um, there was no nice, even things like the Cochrane Review weren't there and really the DTB stood alone. And I think, you know, I've got huge concerns that there is some regulatory capture going on with, with NICE and there's, you know, even more need for us to be independent and ensuring that um, drug safety remains paramount uh, in the future. So there'll be no fly pass, no bunting, uh, no celebratory pudding or cake. We will do our best to highlight our achievements over the last 60 years and actually look forward to, to the next 60. Yes, oddly enough, I, I agree. And I think I'm more excited about the next five years um, because I think uh, there's so much going on uh, with therapeutics now. There's a whole lot of different new modalities of drugs. We you know we've seen this amazing uh, change in the vaccination program. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff that's going to be new in therapeutics in the next five years. I think. And actually, if, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, the pace of development and introduction may well speed up, which again gives us another challenge in terms of presenting evidence and, and informed evidence at, at the time that a drug is made available. So again, another challenge for us to focus on. Absolutely. And, and there seems to be this this want for speed. But as Andrew Herxheimer said and continued to say right until uh, his death, you know, the one thing you never know about a drug that comes onto the market is its long-term safety. And, and that's the issue that we must always keep mindful of. Okay, so watch this space. Um, let's get back to February's DTB and we'll talk about the editorial, uh, look at one of our commentary articles and then have a quick chat about our main review. 
So let's start with Julian Treadwell's editorial, in which he talks about the National Overprescribing Review that was published last year. Um, Do you want to say a bit about it? Yeah, so this um, was a a review that was actually commissioned, I think, about three years ago uh, by the then Secretary of State for Health. And it was led by the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer for England. Uh, Wide consultation uh, involving lots and lots of people and actually a very measured and sensible review, I think. I mean, the starting premise, and I wonder what you made of it, was the claim that 10% of prescriptions are possibly overprescribed. Didn't seem to be an awful lot of evidence to back that up. No, and I think the poor chap, it's one of the situations where they sort of mention it in, in the review. And I think looking from what I can remember, there was really very little evidence to back it up. But of course, the the media sort of used that as their headline. And it certainly got me hot under the collar because there actually there was really no no evidence uh, to back up this this 10 percent of drugs are, um, over prescribed. So it's there. I mean, to be honest, it feels probably about right. Um, but I just think having had such a measured review, very well balanced, you know, talks about some of the really important elements as to why this there may be an issue regarding overprescribing. It just seems a shame that that rather uh, took the shine off it. And what were the causes that they talk about in terms of overprescribing? Well, I think he quite nicely divides it into the systemic causes and the cultural factors that might lead to it. So systemic factors, include things like just the practicality of not having joined up primary and secondary care medical records that you know inadequate information transfers from one to the other perhaps limitations of guidelines or or guidelines that um, are a bit siloed so they don't take into account um, the fact we've got uh, a lot of comorbidity uh, amongst our patients now so that sort of you know that sort of systemic issue and then the cultural factors he talks about the being more nuanced such as perhaps an imbalance between patients and clinicians power uh, and knowledge and assumptions between them both about effectiveness of medicines and that need to actually balance that and and challenge that one of the comments um that we got in response to our antidepressant article last year. And I think it, it, it's borne out by this report as well, was that it's all very well saying things are overprescribed, but if there's a lack of viable alternatives, you know, what's a doc supposed to do? And I think that was one of the issues that, that came out of this report, that perhaps we don't have as many alternatives, or perhaps we don't play up the alternatives that we have got enough. I think this is a major, major issue. Uh, and I think the difficulty is that often lifestyle issues in particular are, you know, we pay lip service to them, but we don't put as much effort or or funding into them as we do into, you know, therapeutics. And that I think is a major issue. And I think it's going to be a major issue going forward because I think so much now about overprescribing is around that sort of lifestyle prevention so we're not giving somebody a drug for now to make them feel better we're giving them a drug because it's going to prevent them having complications of some condition in the future and that changes the, i think the balance of of the pros and cons for that therapeutic cause and the other interesting line i picked up from from the report was it says there is a marked imbalance between the evidence that supports prescribing of medicines and the evidence for reducing or stopping medication 
And that's a theme we've picked up several times in, in the past, haven't we? That, that there's far more that nudges us to prescribe than nudges us to stop prescribing. Absolutely, totally. And, I, and you know, I've just, I've just got to mention that we've had a case recently in the practice of someone who's been put on very high dose steroids for some reason and then developed diabetes and has gone into hospital and is now on insulin. And no one's thought about stopping the steroids. <laughs> I just, you know, and I, I, it, it's, this is the problem. Um, if you're not careful, it just piles on and you get complication on top of complication. And the one thing that got me slightly hot under the collar was uh, what I regarded as a bit of a naive suggestion in, in the document that the um, MHRA should work with the pharmaceutical industry uh, to find a way of licensing and post-marketing surveillance arrangements to generate information and insights that support deprescribing. Now, is that really going to happen? Well, that sounded to me like um, we'll license this new drug for the treatment of high cholesterol so we can get more patients on that and you can de-prescribe the generic drugs. But perhaps I'm just being cynical. I mean, I agree. It is. I don't understand what that means. Um, uh, we're going to talk in a minute, aren't we, about uh, short-acting beta agonists. And I think there's a element of therapeutic shift in there, which is... Um, sort of falls in line almost with that sort of statement. But, you know, those you know, slight criticisms aside, um, the report overall helpful, uh, gives some solutions in terms of medication reviews, deprescribing initiatives. But what struck me is that it's going to require people to make it happen. It is. And I'm, I'm slightly concerned that I think pharmacists have a really important part to play in this. But of course, pharmacists are drug focused. And they may not be best placed to offer patients alternative advice about non-therapeutic options. So I think um, whilst I think they'll be very good at, at, you know, systematic medication reviews and looking at that, I think we've got to be more nuanced and actually consider what's best for the patient and make sure we've also have those lifestyle choices available to patients. Because so much of this is around, I think, that element, that difficult period where we've we've used a drug because actually we we didn't have anything else to offer and it's a sort of second best and i think it's a really nuanced area of therapeutics that's going to be quite difficult to unpick so overall um really helpful to have a, a, a national report i mean certainly for england a national report that that brings all of this in, information together and also to lend the weight of of kind of the department of health to it so with any luck this will bring a bit more oomph to the process? Yes, I, th I think so. And I think that's already in place. I think with the uh, primary care networks and clinical pharmacists in post, I think I think certainly um, that, that process has already started. So I think, yes, all good positive stuff. Okay, so let's turn to our commentary article this month that looks at a study of prescribing for asthma. Do you wanna talk a bit about what the study was about? Yes, yeah, so this is this is interesting. So there is um, a program, uh, and this is a program that is supported by AstraZeneca, um, where participants from thirty-four countries are looking at um, retrospectively observational studies on the use of short-acting beta agonists in asthma, and this particular um, study that. Uh, Joe Congleton and colleagues have 
looked at and commented on is one that's actually based on just um, five uh, European countries, UK, Germany, Italy, Spain and Sweden. And it's looked at the use of short-acting beta agonists in 12-year-olds and above and compared really those countries and looked at the sort of overall use of that drug over a period of, I think, about 12 months. What were they hoping to show or what did they set out to show? I think the concern was that actually the use of short-acting beta agonists is quite a good proxy for how well a patient is being managed. Um, so the number of, they talk about canister prescriptions, but obviously we talk about MDIs in the UK. So the number of, in a short, the number of salbutamol and tabutaline inhalers that a patient uses in a year is a measure of whether their asthma is being controlled or not. And they looked at anyone who had more than three canisters per year as being, well, three or more as being overuse and anyone using less than three canisters or MDIs a year was considered to be appropriate. So they were looking at that sort of uh, degree of appropriateness or uh, inappropriateness in the use of short-acting beta agonists. And findings, focus on the UK. Yeah, so, so um, you know, this is where we hold our heads, perhaps in shame, because uh, 38% of asthmatics looked at in the UK were overusing short-acting beta agonists, and that compared with 9% in Italy, 16% in Germany, 29% in Spain, and, and 30% in Sweden. And in the UK, about 4% of patients that they looked at were using more than 13 inhalers in a year. So... Um, you know, significant signs that perhaps we were were behind the curve curve in making sure that we manage patients better. I suppose there is a question of, of you know, how reliable is this more than three canisters per year as a marker of uh, overuse? I think um, Jo and her colleagues point out that, well, of course, if you're going to have one at home, one maybe in the office, um, you may regularly need, you know, replace them. Um, so you may end up requesting more than three a year just to keep your stocks around your various uh, work and, and home environment. So did you feel it was a reasonable marker? I Yes. I mean, I think so. It probably is. I think you're absolutely right. And I think Joe's absolutely right. There, there are some big issues actually with this data. So, for example, um, whilst it looks as if the UK data is actually very good, I had some reservations about the Swedish data because they didn't seem to have um, coded for asthma. So they had to use a sort of proxy mark of basically 12-year-olds, but they didn't look at anyone over the age of 45 to try and not include patients with COPD. And it's not clear how they selected the patients for the individual cohorts, because obviously they didn't look at every asthmatic in each of those countries. So how did they decide the, who in Germany was going to be part of the study? That's not clear. And they weren't in the same period, time periods either. So there's, there's lots of issues. But I think as a general rule, the use of uh, short-acting beta agonists or the overuse of them is a, is a good proxy marker for poor control. The only other thing that just made me wonder, and this is what I, I alluded to actually when we were talking about the editorial, of course, if you use um, the MART the maintenance and reliever therapy approach to treatment. So this is where you give someone a um, inhaled corticosteroid and a long-acting beta agonist, usually for motorol, as their sort of 
general inhaler which they use as and when they need it and regularly. Of course, you manage their asthma differently and of course your use of individual short-acting beta agonist inhalers will disappear. And so I don't know, but I do wonder, for example, the reason why 9% of patients in Italy um, were only overusing was because actually most of them were using the MART approach. I don't know, but I think that that's something I'd like to know more about. And as a practicing GP, any take-home message? Or th- you know, what am I going to go and do as a result of reading this? Well, I, I think the most powerful thing for us is the UK Royal College of Physicians National Review of Asthma Deaths, and I think this is this is really important to look at because that you know that is so important. Um, and I think what they've always said is, and what is really something we can all do is just go and look at all your patients who've had more than twelve short-acting beta agonist inhalers in a 12-month period and just review them because that's a manageable amount. Of course, what you'll probably find, and I certainly found this recently when I did a home visit, there were all 12 ventil inhalers all beautifully stacked up on the shelf, all pristine, unopened, and you like to have a good stock. <laughs> so, but, you know, you need to review patients who are having, you know, every month ordering a ventil inhaler. Just let's find out what's going on there. And also reflecting back on events over the last two years, um, when COVID first hit, there was an almighty scrabble to get hold of inhalers. So we might find the data is completely skewed by a demand from 2020 for inhalers. I, I think that's absolutely true. There's definitely a spike. And I think if one looks at openprescribing.net, you can now see that spike in in inhaler ordering and, and use just, I think, around March, April time, 2020. Very interesting. And just one last thought, the the, you know, the premise for this uh, bit of research seemed to be uh, that um, GINA guidelines were moving away from short-acting beta agonists and over to the MART strategy. Um, will that follow here? It may well do. Um, I think NICE is actually working this time, aren't they, with the Scottish Collegiate and BTS to to look at this um, and it might well do. And of course, this is goes back to, as I said, to the editorial, is this is this a cunning move to move away from generic SABA to a brand uh, ICS LABA combination? Watch this space, <laughs> watch this space. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and finally, a quick look at our main article. It's another of our prescribing in pregnancy series. Uh, what's this one about? So this is about inflammatory bowel disease um, in women with childbearing age. And um, once again, a, a fantastically comprehensive look at all the elements um, that uh, we need to be aware of and thinking of in, in women with inflammatory bowel disease who might be planning to fall pregnant. And then what, what we should be doing during pregnancy, during labour and in the postnatal period. And what struck me, we, last month we had a DTP select item that looked at a study that identified uh, various barriers to shared decision-making with uh, women of reproductive age with chronic inflammatory disease. And one of their findings was that gastroenterologists who were involved in the survey had a, a general lack of knowledge and, and awareness of clinical evidence on the safety of, of many of the drugs for um, inflammatory bowel disease in pregnancy and how to talk to women about contraceptive options. So, well, let's hope this article helps to plug some of those gaps. Yeah, absolutely, because I think it's very clear in this article around the importance of aiming for pregnancy 
during a period of uh, disease um, inactivity and the importance of the medication barring methotrexate which is a big no-no in pregnancy actually it's far better to treat this and keep it suppressed than actually try and cope with active disease during pregnancy outcomes are much better the other thing i think is worth just highlighting from it is lots in there but these patients need five milligrams of folic acid a day not the 400 micrograms that pregnant women normally are offered or suggested they have and remember that's from the three months prior to conception through to 12 weeks the other thing that struck me i think is worth reminding people is that if the infants have been exposed to biological drugs in utero during pregnancy then you should be avoiding live vaccines in the first six months so that's rotavirus and bcg vaccine so there are some little trip ups here in this group of patients which it's well worth knowing about so i think it's another another really useful article um and uh, one that I think is, you know, should be reading for every gastroenterologist and anyone looking after women of childbearing age. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Many thanks to everyone who's left us a comment on our podcasts. It's always great to have feedback and your suggestions. And if you want to let us know what you think of our podcasts or want to suggest something for us to cover in the future, you can do this on the iTunes site and there's a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, email us directly at dtb at bmj.com. So thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for March's podcast. <laughs>